Hi friends, it's your host Krista Janine and we are back for season two of Trauma and Triumph. This season is going to bring you more amazing stories from women who have experienced trauma in their lives and used it to find triumphant victories on the other side. Today's guest is Dr. Crystal Moore Clemens and she shares with us how the trauma of her consistent experiences with microaggressions in academia have led her to be the triumphant leader she is today. Thank you everyone for joining us for another episode of Trauma and Triumph. Today we have Crystal Moore Clemens, right? Did I get those, did I get that hyphen right? (laughs) It's actually Uh, no hyphen, it's just Crystal Moore Clemens. Oh, there we go. Love it. So we're going to dive right on in. What is one trauma-centered event you have experienced that strikes you as the most pivotal in your life or one of the most pivotal in your life? Well, you know, it's interesting because I think about the first thing that came to mind was just being a black woman in academia and navigating those spaces. And but I think that it's probably been many throughout my entire life. But I'll focus on the experience when uh, I had an academic dean who was a white woman who articulated that my work and what I brought to the table was not deemed rigorous enough because it focused on, it was, I'm, my research is black centered. My research is child centered. My research is, you know, based in black feminist theory. So essentially all things that she didn't value and right. therefore made a gross assumption that, you know, it wasn't legitimate. And that trickled down to how she treated me when I needed to do my maternity leave, uh, to when I was transitioning out to get a new job. It just, um, it was lots of microaggressions in the workplace that I wasn't, um, it just brought back old triggers from being the only black person in predominantly white spaces. And I've had those ever since I entered school at five years old. And let me put some respect on your name. It's, it's Dr. Moore Clements. <laughs> let me put some perspective on this, right? Um, and I think it's so important because so many Black women, specifically in academia, academia, have a similar experience, right? It's like, you know, people either want to tokenize your Black research and like make their predominantly white institutions seem more progressive or they downplay your research because it is so centered around like black culture and black identity that they don't feel that it's bringing anything to the table, right? To the table. And it's like, what table are we coming to? (laughs) So even in that, and like you said, it triggered things, past things in your life. So what did that one moment for you kind of do to shift your paradigm of like, oh, it doesn't matter how many degrees I have. (laughs) It doesn't matter how much research I do. Like, I'm a Black woman and that's it. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. You know, by, you know, Carnegie ranking um, rankings, I went to better institutions than this woman. You know, it doesn't matter that I got a graduate certificate from Duke. It doesn't matter that I went to UNC Chapel Hill. What mattered was I was still looked at as a my lived experience didn't matter. And I think that also too, that was, you know, cause growing up you hear things, oh, she talks white. Oh, she's an Oreo. Yeah. And so you have to kind of think through, okay, how are you gonna 
be in this world, right? Mm-hmm. And so I had went through so much to learn how to be unapologetically black and unapologetically black woman, only to be, you know, jabbed again. Yeah. And, and the irony of it too is that there was a sister in the department who kind of knew what was going on. And um, I didn't feel a sense of allyship by her um, because it, it reminds me too that this notion of whiteness and white supremacy, it can mm-hmm. be enacted by anyone. It doesn't right. just have to be a white person. Right. Um, so it was just, you know, a wake up call. Yeah. And I think that's also just speaking to the other Black woman in the same shared space with you and how we feel like or have been shown rather throughout society, throughout our lived experiences. It's like, well, it can only be one of you here. Right. Mm -hmm. And if there's more than one of us here, well, then now it's a competition. There's not that camaraderie that you would expect. Mm -hmm. And I think we're slowly moving out of that space. But how is that also like a very traumatic thing where you go into a space and you, I mean, because for me, I get excited when I see other Black people in my workspace. But when you see that that's not reciprocated, like how is that also triggering in regards to like your traumas of your past and growing up and how did that all kind of come full circle in that space? Yeah, it was a lot. I mean, I definitely had to renegotiate what my response was to, or my responsibility was to my own work. So I had to take a step back and say, you know what? It doesn't matter if I'm at this institution or at this institution. The core of what I do and the core of who I am is about the liberation of black women, black children, black feminist theory. Like if I keep that at the core, then I can just move on to the next space. But that doesn't mean that it didn't hurt. That doesn't mean that it didn't bring up old traumas of, you know, uh, being excluded from certain friend groups or, yeah. or having to navigate multiple friend groups, right? Mm-hmm. Um, just so that you can, um, you know, fit in as an adolescence at a predominantly white Catholic high school in Chicago. Right, right. (laughs) No, exactly. And I think just to your point, though, and kind of moving in alignment with purpose, it's like, and I speak to this a lot as well, it was like trauma is still traumatic, right? Even if you can find purpose in it, and even if you know that it's pushing you toward a direction that you need to go in, it's still taking that space to acknowledge your pain. And I don't think we all know how to balance that space of like acknowledging your pain and hurt in a situation, but still finding space to, to tap into your purpose within it. So like, what was your, I guess, spiritual, mental, emotional journey in that? And how did that kind of all play out for you? Yeah. You know, now that you asked me that, I think, you know, growing up in Chicago, you, you, even though your parents shield you from violence and from stress and drama or do their best to shield you, it doesn't mean that you're going to be exempt from it. And so I remember um, growing up, seeing my aunt, you know, murdered, right? And what that meant for our entire family, you know, and having that experience, watching my grandmother, watching my mother and my other, even my father, watching all of the family members piece it together for us as children, it made me think about how I've maybe been suppressing some of the things and that that same response to that 
white supremacist microaggression violence is a similar response that I felt as a child navigating the violence of seeing a family member, um, you know, being gone as a result of gun violence and domestic abuse. Yeah. Because violence is violence. Yeah. And it just, you know, it triggered you and you go back and you think, oh, wow, I realized I haven't fully resolved that or I'm still hurt by that. And I need to think about, you know, how do I how do I heal from it? Yeah, no, and I think that's such a good point and so well said, too, because I don't think people understand how daily microaggressions towards specific demographics it is it is violent and it is a violent and like your reaction is very visceral in return and even though it's not always outward it still impacts you in the same way as physical violence right Mm -hmm. and that's why we started to expand the conversation of emotional and mental abuse as well because it still impacts who you are and how you navigate the world and i think And I mean, again, I love that you like bring this up because I don't think people understand how microaggressions are triggering to our past lived experiences, right? And it's like, when you punch somebody, you don't get to say how I respond back to you, right? (laughs) It's like, you've punched me and now whatever happens next, you know, happens. But I don't think we give people space, specifically Black women, to be humans, right? And to have an honest trauma response to something that is triggering. So, because that dean told me, you're absolutely right, Krista. That dean told me first maternity leave, now telecommuting. Now, this is before the world of remote work, global pandemic. But I was the director of a fully online program, and my family was in transition, and I want I elected to work remotely because the policy stated. I was eligible to work remotely. Right. But the response from her was first maternity leave, now telecommuting. Who does she think she is? Was a direct judgment on the audacity of a Black woman taking um, opportunities allotted to them to right. do something to her, to, you know, to better support them. And I remember feeling like I never had time to grieve for my aunt, right? It's yeah. like, how dare you, you gotta, we gotta pick up the pieces, right? Right. So like, how dare you think you have any space to grieve? How dare you think you have any space to heal? How dare you think you come off a of maternity leave? And right. think, you know, six months later, asked to work remotely. Right. And I think that's so interesting to me and kind of leads into like this path of like triumph and just sitting in your authentic likeness as a black woman and embracing it. But People are really upset with Black women who have the audacity to be like, I'm sorry, this is a policy. Other people get to get to enjoy this policy. Why wouldn't I? And I think we are at that space and stage of more Black women stepping up and saying, I am going to take advantage of this. But the conversation that's not happening enough, in my opinion, is what that does to the Black woman who's the first one to do it or the first one to take advantage of it, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, how was that even like traumatic for you being like, we do have this policy and I am going to take, you know, advantage of it, but I'm taking advantage of it because I know other people will need to take advantage of it in the future. And I think that's part of it too. It's like, somebody got to do it first. But then for you, like you said, like 
having to navigate that trauma in that space too, knowing that this was the right thing to do, not only for your family, but for other people coming behind you who would also need to do this. Well, yeah, I mean, and the irony of it is, is that when I um, elected to submit the paperwork, I first did a little research because I knew there was a white woman colleague in my department who received tenure and she did not physically live in the town where she was tenured uh, because because she was working remotely. Now, did she put the policy? Did she follow the protocols? No, because privilege tells us, oh, I don't have to do that. Um, My husband works in another part of the state. Therefore, I'm going to commute and I'm just going to get my work done and do what I need to do. But see, I know as a black woman, I can't, you know, ask for forgiveness later. I have to. I have to follow the protocols. Um, But I just, at that point, I'm glad that I proceeded and that I stuck to what what was best for me and my family. And it ultimately led me in resigning. Yeah. Which is fine because at first I was so salty about it. Like, oh my gosh, what am I doing to my career? Not realizing it was time for me to get out of there. Mm -hmm. And two, um, better was on the horizon, mm-hmm. but it's hard to know that in the moment. Yeah. And like, even to that point though, so how, how do you feel like you grew through that experience? Like, what do you feel like were your biggest like points of growth after that transaction of events? Um, my points of growth were document everything I used to take <laughs> for granted that I can have a casual conversation or a formal conversation and that people would honor what was said. Um, But that's not the case. So a simple follow-up email, you know, and I know people make memes about this and joke (laughs) per our our conversation, uh, comma. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I think it's imperative that we learn to, to document and to advocate, right? Well, another thing that I learned was it's okay to be hurt. It's okay to be upset. And it's okay to feel like it's a setback, but it's not okay to stay in that space. And right. whether it's through, you know, my own fitness journey in terms of staying active, you know, for my own mind, body, spirit, whether it's, you know, just a mental check-in with a therapist, I, I have to do something to get me out of the funk of what it feels like. to to grow and to change. Um, And then the third thing I learned too was people are not going to be right all the time. People are not going to always do right. So should I let that dictate my joy? Nope. (laughs) Absolutely not. Exactly. But you know what? And it's so interesting. And like, and I love talking to people who are like, kind of completely like in sync with themselves, mind, body, and spirit. Cause even to the point that you stated earlier, when you decided to resign and how you were upset, like at first, but then like, once you started to see things play out, it was like actually better was coming and more than what you had in that space. And we were talking about this yesterday at the event that I was teaching at where it's like, we get so caught up in like, well, this was my plan and this is what I wanted and this is, and I worked for this, but it's like sometimes, and Carrie Washington said this recently, 
rejection is God's protection, right? And when I heard that, I was like, oh my, yes. Because when we think about our ideas, sometimes what we think we want isn't what we need. And it's not even the max of what we can have. And we settle in these spaces that aren't conducive for us. But the moment we start to really surrender into the space of like, what is for me will be mine and what's not, I need to remove myself from, that is when all these amazing things start to happen. Like that's the space of like magic that happens. Absolutely. And I couldn't have said it any better. And that's exactly what happened. But I'm not going to lie. I was stuck for a minute. Um, I was stuck as a mother. I was stuck as a professor, professional. I was even stuck as a partner and a wife. Um, because, you know, I'm in a two academic household, so we got to really, uh, it's a lot of negotiating about in consideration for whose career will kind of, you know, go forth and so on and so forth. But, but I, I think I slowly pulled myself slowly, but surely pulled myself out of it because I knew that I was more than that circumstance Mm -hmm. and that's what it was. So was that email from her saying, you know, now you want to work remotely? Was that your aha moment or was it like? So it wasn't wasn't an email. It was actually a message she gave to my department chair that my chair gave to me. Oh, wow. But yes, it was an aha moment. And it said to me, it doesn't matter what I do. I'm not going to be valued here. Right. Right. And I had to realize, too, that. And I don't want to sound egotistical, but I am a gift. Yeah, I, I am a gift in terms of what I bring to my students. I am a gift in terms of what I bring in terms of my um, competence and research and yeah. my commitment to that. And if this space didn't want to value me, I know I will be in a space that will value me. Yeah. And I don't even think that's egotistical. You know, I'm not necessarily one to promote humility. I'm not going to lie because I feel like everyone's like, be humble, be humble. I'm like, eh, y'all think Beyonce is humble? I think Beyonce is gracious. I think she is kind. I think she is, you know, fair. But I don't know that I would call Beyonce humble. Like, you know know what I mean? So it's like, you can be a good person and still be like, but I know who I am and what I bring to this space. And like, nobody's going to disrespect that because I feel like with black women, unless we say it and know it for ourselves, people will try to take advantage and downplay, like you say, your research and the work that you've done and what you're bringing to the table. So yeah, this is not a space of humility. Uh, I'm just like everyone to know that because I do, I feel like we have to lift ourselves up because the world does a good enough job of tearing us down. Yeah, it's okay to say, I know what I bring and, and I'm good with it. So absolutely. Yeah. So yeah, no, absolutely. Cause you are, you know, like I, I love the work that you do. I love all the things that you do, which is why I did want to have you on this podcast so people can kind of see it from a bird's eye view of all the ways that we can have that holistic, like healing and holistic wellness. But going back to something you said at the beginning, our, our conversation about healing and how you hadn't really healed or had time to heal and process from your aunt's passing. Like what has your healing journey been like throughout, I guess your past like five or so years to get to a space now where you do kind of feel like centered and like, good with where you are a good therapy <laughs> good, yes. good good yoga yeah um and I think 
being honest with myself that every day is not, um, is not easy. I mean, I have to be gracious with myself, right. As a, as a family member, because within black families, we don't like to talk about stuff. Right. Right. Uh, you know, girl, what you going talking about that and why you right. bring old stuff. <laughs> but I think if you take a moment, bring up some old stuff, connect the dots, Mm-hmm. you can, you can get into some new stuff that feels better. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's what I've been focusing on. So when those things come up, you know, process tr- and, you know, reading kind of sitting with what I'm feeling with at the moment. And then also to um, actively working not to pop off on people. I'll just be straight up because you get so mad. And <laughs> That's <upset>. real. <laughs> And you really got to think about, okay, let me pause. Is this yeah. really about me or is this about something else? And then not to take for granted other people's trauma. Right. Yeah, no, I love that. I tell people all the time, the reason why I work out so much is so I don't punch people in the face. Like that's actually for real. And like, I know people think I'm half kidding, but I'm like, no, because I can get that angry. So if I don't process this somewhere else, and not, you know, that everybody will have problems. But I don't think a lot of people understand that emotional, physical connection of being like, I need to release this. And I know if I don't release this in this space, it's going to manifest in a very negative way somewhere else. Right. And it'll trickle down to the little folks in your life. Mm -hmm. Like right now, I'm really focused on being cognizant of, you know, how I manage my emotions, even how I manage my tongue. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, I'm raising a black girl and a black boy that I want them to have the same, I want them to have better coping mechanisms than me. Yeah. But like I came to the coping mechanism game. <laughs> right. Um, so, you know, I always eat and I know my daughter and my son probably look at me like I'm crazy, but I'm like, take a deep breath, assess your emotions. What are you feeling right now? Right. Cause it's just, you know, you can easily slip back into, um, you know, recreating or perpetuating those traumas. And I'm trying not to do that. Absolutely. No. And I think that's the biggest thing about like conscious parenting that people are talking about now, especially within the black community. It's like, we are very aware of the fact that there are things and like nothing against our parents. They did the best they had with what they had. Like, you know what I mean? But now that we are privy to so many more things, we are very much so more intentional with our parenting style right and intentional on how we take up space around our kids and also let them have their own space to figure out their stuff and I think that even in itself is like a triumph for us as a community right Mm -hmm. because so many of us are trying to figure out well how can I not pass on this generational trauma to my child Mm -hmm. um but yeah but that being said because there's so many questions I could ask you but I know we I want to be mindful of time. But one thing I am interested to know from your perspective is how do you feel like the space you're in now is like a manifestation of your trauma from that event at your last position or whichever position that was? Yeah. Ooh, I think it's me now not feeling insecure about speaking up for myself. So it, and it also helps me manage my team in a better way. If I had never experienced that microaggression being devalued, um, you know, just that, even that racial trauma, 
it would not have set me up to be the leader that I am now. I am managing a team of 12 women. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about performance appraisals today. And I said, you know, when we do the performance appraisals, it's not for me to try to combat what you say. I said, it's for me to make sure I've provided enough resources and support so that you have the stats, the citations, the chops to back it up on why you right. think you're so great. I said, I don't want right. to play that kind of game with you. I want to play the, have I given you enough professional development support? Have I given you enough encouragement? Have I given you enough feedback for you to say you are exemplary? I wouldn't right. have never thought about leadership that way if I had not felt so devalued as a faculty member. And even, you know, after I left that job, I went to another uh, position um, before I got to this role that I'm in now. And it was, it wasn't all bad, but it wasn't all good either. Yeah. You know, I had a, I had a department chair who, although she was a black woman, she did not believe in liberation. And so it was very interesting to see how she managed. Wait. Listen. <laughs> Uh, okay, you know what? Teach his own, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, she, she was very um, belittling to the to the other people in the department, um, and it wasn't because she felt like we weren't qualified, but her understanding of a leader was was rooted in like more of a dictatorship approach than mm -hmm. a collaborative approach. Got it. And so. Having that initial experience helped me kind of put my feelers out for the type of leader I wanted to be managed by, but mm -hmm. also the type of leader I wanted to be. Right. And so, you know, I try to do things by consensus with my team. You know, if I feel like somebody's not performing to the level that I think they need to perform, I say, hey, I heard about this wonderful conference. They're offering this, this, and this. And I think it's going to really help you in your role. Right. I don't want to... I'm, tr right. I'm trying to lose hater vibes. I'm yeah. trying to lose right. microaggressions. I'm trying to lose that because that doesn't make people feel good in the workplace. Right. And right. so that, I think, all of those situations really helped me think about, you know what? I don't want to recreate my trauma yeah. on, my, on my colleagues or my staff. Yeah, you know, and I mean, and not to get super far off in the weeds here, but being in the field that I am in, it's interesting because most Black women that I've worked with that are like my superiors, I have not gotten along with them. And it's crazy because most of the people who have like really helped elevate my career have been white men. And when I say that to people, they're like, what? And I'm like, I know. It's very interesting, but I think it goes into like this idea of what respect looks like, of mm -hmm. what a good leader looks like, of what management looks like. Cause I don't even think that they didn't like me as a person. I just thought that they, you know, felt like I was too authentically black and didn't care. Mm -hmm. And it was in a space where that wasn't necessarily what was acceptable for lack of a better term. So I think it was them trying to help me, but I think also in that space of like help, it was more so like traumatic because you think you're going into the space and your leaders look like you, so they're going to get it. And then they also try to assimilate you into a space that's not where you want to be. And that in itself can even be traumatic. So like to your yeah. point, as a leader moving forward, 
I know what type of space I want. I know what type of environment I want people who work with me or under me or just around me like to feel coming into that space. So last question, if you could talk to somebody who's new to the academic world, they're just starting out, they got their first professor position and they're dealing with similar things, right? Um, What would you tell them to encourage them along their path? Ooh, you know, I would say number one, to set boundaries with time um, and decide what type of academic they want to be. You can be a traditional academic where you go through the tenure track and you get your promotion and you write your publications and do your research. Or you can be an academic where you do both community work in the field, you do a little research, you do some presentations, but then you're of the community, right? Right. And I don't think that one is more valuable than the other. I think, you know, be mindful of your time and decide for yourself early on the type of academic you want to be. For me, I knew that my work was situated within the Freedom Schools context. You know, that experience when I was in college totally transformed my life. You know, becoming a servant leader intern, learning about the history of Freedom Schools. But I knew that I didn't want to just be a faculty member in the classroom. I actually wanted to be with children to do Freedom Schools. And I feel like I had to go through those different faculty positions to get me where I am now in terms of like my role with the Children's Defense Fund. But I also think too, you need to be able to take risks and bet on yourself. Because if I did not take the quote unquote risk to leave academia, to go work at a nonprofit, I just don't think I would have the level of joy and happiness that I have right now. I mean, like, this is a lot better for me. Yeah. And I and everyone who knows me knows I love being a professor. I love teaching. I love doing the research. Yeah. Um, but I needed to bet on myself to realize yeah. that I am very knowledgeable in this area. And, and I feel like an expert. I need to act like an expert. And I need to move forward with that. Um, yeah. So that's what I would say. You know, don't don't think that academia it looks one type of way because I'm an academic in yeah. this role. Yeah, no, I love that. And I know there are a lot of, not even just Black women, but people in general who are going to hear that and it's going to like be a aha moment for them or a light bulb. Because I do, I think we have these ideas of what it's supposed to look like once we have these credentials. And it's like, all of this is made up. All of this is a construct that we live within that you can like, it's very malleable if you make it (laughs) and you can, you can make it what you want it to be, but we're not given permission, right. To do that. And, and people want permission. They want to be given permission to live the life they want, but it's like, sometimes you just gotta, like you said, bet on yourself and do it. Yeah. I'm learning now. I don't have to ask for permission. I can do what I need to do. No is a complete sentence. And if I need to make a change, I can make a change and it's okay. And if it doesn't feel like it's the right thing, I can come up with a new strategy so that it is the right thing. Exactly. And, and being okay with trying, right? Like it's okay to try and say, Hey, that wasn't it. 
Like, and that's cool too. Okay, so let's start to wrap things up. So one question, then we're going to get into our lightning round. Um, So if somebody were to ask you, what is a journey of trauma to triumph? What would you say? I would say it's going to be acknowledging the hurt, acknowledging the fear, um, getting the tools to do the work to recover, and then basking in the bliss that will come as a result of all of that hard work. Oh, well, well, that's the, yes, that's the perfect bow to this conversation. All right, well, let's get into the lightning round then. I love that. <laughs> so um, what is, easier said than done though. Just oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Always. <laughs> Always. Uh, okay, what is the one thing that you've achieved that you're most proud of in your life? Oh, honestly, my children, it's hard to be a mommy, but I'm glad that they're here and I'm glad that I survived and had a healthy birth to even, you know, do what we're doing right now. Okay. What's your number one goal for 2022? Debt recovery, girl. I want to be debt free. I want to keep pouring into my children's, you know, uh, college fund and you know just building generational wealth yeah and then where do you see yourself in five years I see myself as in five years as a person who's still working at the children's defense fund quite honestly I'm really yeah. enjoying my role um, but I would I don't know how long the national director needs to stay so yeah. I would be um, thinking about, do I want to go back to academia? Mm-hmm. Um, and then the terms in which I want to go back to academia. And I'm going to, yeah. I want to speak to existence that I'll be somebody's full professor with an endowed mm-hmm. professorship, um, mm-hmm. because I'm a thought leader in this space now yeah. and I can support and help, you know, up and coming scholars. Well, I'm here for that. Let's get it. All right. What first impression do you want others to experience when they meet you? she's kind and then what's one quote you live by and why Ooh. oh man so many come into mind I I know. Say, um audrey lords your silence will not protect you oh wow and why why is that your one of your go-tos really really anything from audrey lord right because she talks about our poetry is not a luxury she talks about you know self-care is not um an act of i can't remember the exact quote but it's you know really for our survival essentially but i would say audrey lord any quote by audrey lord because she teaches us that we have to take care of ourselves she comes out of a black feminist a paradigm that really privileges the lived experiences of Black women. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't matter if you are a Black woman from rural Mississippi or you are a Black corporate executive in New York, she's privileging the lived experience of, of what it means to be Black and woman in, in this world. Mm. Well, I love that. You know, that's, that's what I'm here for. I love it. I love it all. Um, well, thank you so much for doing this, for having this conversation with me. Um, where can people find you if they want to know more about your research or the work you do? How can people stay up to date? Um, I guess you can find me on 
my Twitter, Chris Clemens, PhD, um, Instagram, uh, but also, um, you know, I've been writing stuff on Freedom School, so you can okay. check out our website, children'sdefensefund.org backslash Freedom Schools, okay. and you can see some work there. Awesome. And I'll put all of this in the notes. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in and join us next time on another episode of Trauma and Triumph. And there you have it, friends, another episode of Trauma and Triumph. Thank you so much for joining us again this week. And if you're liking what you're hearing so far, feel free to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Amazon Music. See you next week for another triumphant story.